How many of you know Hillsdale College? Hillsdale College is a conservative, constitutionally based college in Michigan. They've been in existence since before the Civil War. This is not a new college. And one of the things that they have is online courses that you can take, and they're free. You just sign up and, you know, they send you fundraising emails every now and then. You've got to put up with that. But the courses themselves are free, and they are generally excellent, really, really good. Kay and I very often watch them together on the evening or the afternoon after Shabbat. Constitution 101, which is taught by Larry Arn, is absolutely superb. The one we're going through right now is Theology 101, which is Western understanding of God and Christianity. And it's got several different teachers. The first two are by a guy named Donald Westblade. And I'm taking a lot of what I'm going to talk about today from him. So understand that I'm giving attribution here, and this is not my brilliance that you're listening to. He's a very good teacher. And one of the things about a good teacher is he not only occasionally tells you something you didn't know, he also will tell you something you did know in a way that you hadn't thought of it. And that's pretty much the case here. He told me something I didn't know, and then he B told me a bunch of stuff that I had never thought of that way. So where he is is he's in Mark. The gospel reading that we are going through is Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 8 in the normal course of events. Wonderful coincidence, which is not a kosher word. And one of the things that he taught me that I had never seen before is Mark is tightly organized. Mark doesn't look like it's tightly organized, okay? But once he pointed it out to me, it was, duh, really tightly organized. And most of you who have been through the Bible as many times as most of you have, recognize that the book of John is also tightly organized. And the book of John is organized on the number seven. So Yeshua does seven miracles, there's seven I am statements, and so forth. So the book of John is organized on seven. It turns out Mark is organized on three. I'm not going to go through the whole thing that he goes through, but where I want to be is there are three crowd scenes, three miracles, then the healing of a blind man, and then there are going to be three predictions of the crucifixion, which we'll also briefly talk about, then the healing of a blind man again. So that's the chunk we're going to be in. And by the way, these three miracles are all accompanied by crowd scenes. There's so many people there, you know, he's speaking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and people are pressing in so close to the finally has to get into a boat just to be able to talk. But after he speaks, he then sends his disciples in a boat across the sea. That's the sequence of things. So this first one in chapter 4 is they're going across the sea, and he's sacked out in the back of the boat, having been talking and healing people and all that kind of stuff, and he's tired, and he sacks out in the back of the boat, and they head across the sea. And of course, you've got the storm that comes up, and his disciples say, hey, wake up, don't you care that we're dying? And he wakes up and says, all right, stop it, calm, peace, be done. 
and the disciples are amazed and don't understand. So that's the first of the miracles in this set. The next one occurs in chapter 6. And that's where, again, he's at the Sea of Galilee, and he feeds the 5,000. A miracle. Then he has his disciples get in the boat and go across the sea. And he's not with them this time. He's not sacked out in the back, so they got to go by themselves. So what happens there? We have a storm again. And Yeshua walks on water and walks up to him and says, What do you guys got hard hearts? Don't you understand? And again, the storm calms and we get to the other side. The disciples don't understand because their hearts were hardened. And I'm going to talk a little bit about hard hearts when I get through this sequence, and so pay attention to that. So the next one of this set of three is in the chapter Matthew read today, and that's Mark chapter 8. Again, we have a crowd scene, and he gets in the boat, and they head across the sea. We don't have a, we don't have a storm this time. But his disciples realized they forgot to bring lunch. And so they're talking about, what are we going to do? We don't have any lunch. And Yeshua looks at him and says, hey, you still don't understand. When we fed the 5,000, how much did you take up? Twelve. When we fed the 4,000, how much did you take up? Seven. Don't you guys get it? And so the sequence is, in a boat, Something happens, the disciples don't get it. So we get out of the boat and we go to Bethsaida. That's also important. Ding, 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 Bethsaida. I'll explain why that's important in just a minute. And a blind man gets brought to him to have his eyes healed. Now, understand, my perspective on Yeshua is he is God incarnate. But he isn't able to heal this guy on one try. Takes two shots. So the first time he tries, he said, all right, can you see? Well, I can sort of see stick figure men walking around, but no. And so he has to take another shot at it, and he finally heals him. Now, I will gently suggest that had he wanted to, he could have healed him in one shot, and the two shots is for a reason. So then... He finally sits his disciples down and he says, All right, guys, who do people say that I am? And we get stuff all over the place. John the Baptist, Elijah, all that kind of stuff. And finally he looks at Peter and says, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ. Peter's eyes are opened. He sees now. And oh, by the way, where's Peter actually from? Would you believe Bethsaida? Look at the book of John. It's one of these things that West Blade brought up, and I'd never seen it before myself. So don't feel bad you didn't see it either. Okay? Peter is from Bethsaida. So what Yeshua does is he heals a blind man from Bethsaida. And then Peter's eyes are open, and he sees, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Everybody see the sequence of things. Doing miracles, doing miracles. They don't understand. We don't understand. Go across in the boat, go across in the boat, go across in the boat. We don't understand. So finally he has to heal their blindness and they understand and they see that he is the Messiah. But 
Not quite. Because remember our blind man that got healed. How many shots did it take? Two, right? So what's going to happen now is we're going to go into a series of three predictions of the crucifixion. And we have the first of those in today's reading in Mark 8. That's why Mark 8 is so pivotal. What it is, is the end of the three power miracles that he does and the beginning of the three predictions of the crucifixion that he is going to do. It's pivotal. So he then begins to teach them and says, all right, it's necessary that I go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man die and so forth. And Peter says, whoa, no way. And what is Yeshua's response? Get thee behind me, Satan. In Westblade, he's a college professor, and, and teachers have these standard jokes that they use, and it, you know, they're written down, we use them every year, kind of thing. And his joke is that, well, Peter finally gets an A on his paper when he figures out that Yeshua is the Messiah. And then he turns around and he gets worse than an F, he gets a Satan on his paper for not understanding that Yeshua has to suffer and die. So then we have three instances where, and he's just talking to his disciples now, okay? And he talks to them and explains that he has to go to Jerusalem and die. And in all three cases, they don't get it. And what they wind up doing is doing things like discussing who's going to sit on his right side when they finally get to the kingdom. Disciples wrangling about what their position is going to be. And he is saying, guys, you don't understand. There's going to be a crucifixion here. And they're saying, well, yeah, but when the kingdom comes, who's going to be first? You know, those kinds of questions. And that, by the way, tracks with the three predictions of the crucifixion. So now let's come back to our blind man. And what we have is two shots at healing him. First shot at healing him, he sees stick figure men walking around. And it's only on the second shot that he sees actual men. The disciples are doing the same thing. The first three miracles, they finally see that the Messiah is coming in power. This guy has got the power. He's got everything that makes him a Messiah, and he's going to be the king, and he's going to rule and reign because he's got the power. What they are seeing is a stick figure Messiah. Because the other half of the prophecies is the Messiah is going to have to suffer and die. Remember back in November, I did a talk on a plastic Jesus where there are lots and lots of people in the body of Christ who believe in a plastic Jesus. Which is to say, these parts of the Gospels I really like and that's the Jesus I love. And this other stuff, well, they, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to be raptured out or whatever. But that, you know. So they believe in a plastic Jesus. The disciples were believing in a plastic Messiah. All they could see at first was the power, that he was going to restore the kingdom, that he had the ability to do these things. What they didn't see is the part of him where he has to suffer and die. They didn't want to see that part of the, the Messiah thing. We like the power stuff, we don't like this other stuff, so they didn't see it. And so after that set of three teachings on the crucifixion, we have the healing of another blind man. The structure is beautiful when you see it. 
I'd never seen it before in my life, and I give all credit to Westblade who pointed it out, and, and it did a wonderful job. But one other thing as we're going on, the fact that the Messiah is in the boat is also important. And those first three vignettes where he speaks to a crowd, gets into a boat, crosses the sea, are extremely important. And what that says is he is going not only to be the Messiah of Israel, he's going to be the Messiah of the whole world. And those of you who have been around a while, you understand this. The metaphor in the Old Testament is shepherds. David's a shepherd. Abraham is a shepherd. Isaac and Jacob are shepherds. The metaphor there is shepherds. And of course, Yeshua is the good shepherd and the great shepherd. The metaphor in the New Testament is boats and fishermen. He deliberately grabs some of his disciples as fishermen. They spend a whole lot of time in boats. The metaphor is Israel is a land power. They're not really a naval power. So the sea talks about the Gentiles and the rest of humanity. So the idea that Yeshua goes in a boat each of these times as he does the miracles that authenticate him as the Messiah, the King, the one who's coming in power, what that tells us is it's not just the Messiah of Israel. He's the Messiah of the whole world. And of course his disciples don't get that either. In fact, that's the whole point of Peter and Cornelius. You know, Peter and the magic sheet that comes down and he goes to Cornelius. So when Peter is called to go to Cornelius in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, all the Jews say, what? And they don't get it. Because as far as they're concerned, this is the Messiah of Israel. This is our Messiah. This is our coming king. This is the one who was raised to the dead for our salvation. What's this business with Gentiles all of a sudden? They don't see it. But this idea that his miracles as the Messiah of a king are done in a boat on the sea is telling us that that's what's coming. And of course his disciples don't see that any more than they see that he is coming to be crucified. Which brings me to hardness of heart, which is what I actually want to talk about for a few minutes. The disciples in Mark 6 and Mark 8 have hard hearts. Now, these are Yeshua's hand-picked disciples. These are not wicked people. These are the good guys. And they've got hard hearts. So what I want to talk about is what it means to have a hard heart, how you recognize that you have a hard heart, and to some extent, how you get it softened up. Now, who's the poster child for hard hearts in the Bible? Pharaoh. First time it shows up. Then we have Israel at Sinai. I've talked to you about this before. Israel at Sinai, they're standing at the foot of the mountain. Remember we talked about this when we did the three Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, as a, as a triple several weeks ago. You've got Calvary in Psalm 22. You've got the valley of the shadow of death in 23. And then you've got the triumphal entry, the return of the king, etc. in 24. So in the middle is where we are. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. God gathers his people at the foot of the mountain, and what he wants to do is he wants to speak his word into their hearts. They wouldn't let it happen. And they said, Moses, you go up to the top, talk to him, find out what he's got to say. You come down, we'll listen to you, we can't hear God. 
And that's, of course, when we get tablets of stone, which is a metaphor for hearts of stone. So then we have the hard heart where Yeshua is calming the sea. Peace, be still, stop, knock it off. And everything calms down. The biggest symptom of a hard heart is the inability to see the supernatural acts of God and understand what they are. Pharaoh goes through ten plagues, water into blood, frogs, all that kind of stuff, doesn't phase Pharaoh. He doesn't see that this is the hand of God. He doesn't get it. And of course, Israel standing at the foot of the mountain isn't willing to have the word of God written directly on their hearts. The disciples in the boat don't recognize what's going on with the Messiah. And it specifically says he calms the sea and they don't understand because their hearts were hard because they didn't understand the business about the bread. So when Messiah feeds 5,000 or 4,000 people, they don't get it. They don't understand. They also don't understand calming the storm because their hearts are hard. In other words, they don't recognize that God is doing these things. So the signature thing of a hard heart is you see events that happen to you around you and you don't recognize the supernatural hand of God in those events. That's what it means to have a hard heart. It doesn't mean that you are wicked. It doesn't mean that you are evil. It doesn't mean that you're a sinner, although most of us are. What it means is you lack the ability to see what God is doing in your presence. You attribute it to luck. You attribute it to whatever. But you don't see the move of the hand of God in your life and that's a signature of a hard heart. And the thing that will cause a hard heart is distraction. In other words, you're not paying attention. Now, if you're in a boat and a storm and he stands up and says, peace be still, I think he's got their attention. So distraction wasn't the problem there. So one of the things is distraction. Another one is the lies of the enemy. So what the enemy does is tries to convince you that the things that happen in your life are random, don't have a supernatural cause, it's just normal life, all of those kinds of things. What the enemy tries to do is get you to stop seeing God in the things that are happening around you in your life. And what the enemy is trying to do is get you to harden your heart. And by the way, who's hardening your heart? You are. The fact that you got help from somebody else doesn't mean that you aren't responsible for your own hard heart. So what happens in the case of the disciples is they hardened their own hearts. That's what happened in the case of Israel standing at the foot of Sinai. They hardened their own hearts. In the case of Pharaoh, it starts off that he hardens his own heart. But as he loses the courage of his convictions, God steps in and hardens it for him. But that's late in the process. So the hardening of your heart is something we do to ourselves. And what I will suggest is one of the ways to get around that is look at God's creation. We've got daffodils coming up right now. We've got tulips coming up right now. We had beautiful peach blossoms, and then we had all that snow and everything, and I'm afraid I'm not going to get peaches this year. 
which is a sadness because I love fresh peaches. But the point is, I can look at things like that and I can recognize this is God at work. God did this. There's a preacher I used to listen to on the radio years and years and years ago. He had a kind of a interesting story. He was up with his wife hiking up in the Rockies. And they came into this little valley, got a beautiful crystal clear lake in it, and the whole meadow is covered with flowers. And he looks at that and he says, we're probably the only people that have ever seen this. Look at what God did for us. And his wife looked at him and said, eh, actually he did it because he liked it. It was pleasing to him. He didn't care whether you saw it or not. It was pleasing to him and that's why he did it. And there's truth in that. But the other part of that is this preacher was looking at it and recognizing that God does things like that even when there isn't anybody to see it. And the fact that you are privileged to walk into a place like that and see what God has done should be a cure or at least a band-aid for a hard heart. Most of you know I didn't start off life as a real believer. It wasn't until late that I came to understand God. And looking back on my life, I can see where the hand of God was guiding me. I didn't see it at the time. But looking back, I can see it clearly. So learning to recognize the hand of God in your life is the cure for hard heart. Looking to recognize the hand of God around you in circumstances, things that happen, just the beauty of the place, just the fact that everything works the way it does, these are all supernatural. We have been taught to look at them as natural. If there's any God involved here, that's just what flowers do. Well, yeah, it is just what flowers do, but they do that because it pleases God. And God wants you to look at it and be pleased at what he's done. There's a rabbinic story that I've always kind of liked. What it says is when somebody dies and comes into the presence of the Almighty, the first thing that he's going to be asked is, did you enjoy all the fruit that I made? That's the cure for a hard heart. Did you enjoy all the fruit that I made? Did you enjoy all the flowers that I put out? Did you see where I did this for you when you were in a mess? Did you see that? And what a hard heart does is prevents you from seeing all of those things. And you're the one that does it to yourself if you have one. And by the way, we all go in and out. Nobody is consistent. I'm certainly not. But I'm trying to do better. Now, the last thing. As I've been talking about the virus and political stuff, and I'm not going to talk very much about it right now, but I want to talk about one other thing that God says in his word. And it's in Deuteronomy. And he's talking to Israel. Of course, in Deuteronomy, who else would he be talking to? So Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day. 
because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. So what Israel is saying is, God, why did you abandon us? What God is saying is, I didn't abandon you, you abandoned me. And as we look at the shaking that is going around, work on your heart. Work to be able to see the hand of God and see the hand of God in all of this. And what I will suggest is, as I've suggested a number of times, this is a worldwide shaking. There has been a spirit of fear loosed on the whole world. Remember in Deuteronomy it also says, if you guys don't listen to me, what's going to happen is you're going to go out against your enemies and you're going to be terrified and you're going to scatter and you're going to flee seven ways. In other words, what he's saying is, I will turn a spirit of fear loose among you and you will not be able to stand against your enemies. That's what we are dealing with worldwide. There has been a spirit of fear loosed among us. Doesn't say people aren't getting sick, doesn't say people aren't dying, but the reaction to all of this is the result of a spirit of fear. And a spirit of fear finds a foothold in a hard heart. If you have got a soft heart to God and you are focused on Him and you are seeing the hand of God in everything around you, a spirit of fear has no place to stand. So, work on your heart. Soften it. See the hand of God in everything. And fear not.